0: Hey, in Context friends, we need your help. Between now and March 30th, we have a survey that is out and we need you to complete it. We want your feedback. We want to know why you listen to Michael Easley in Context, what you want to hear more of, less of, and anything else you want to tell us to help guide us in the future of Michael Easley in Context. So right now, if you go to michaelincontext.com slash survey, you will be entered to win a package, including a $50 Amazon gift card, Ken Boa's handbook to prayer, and Michael's book on prayer interludes. Again, your feedback is so valuable to us, and we would love it if you took our survey from now until March 30th at michaelincontext.com survey. Over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books. All of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation. All 66 books. The Big Book. Cover to Cover. This is Michael Easley In context,
1: We are doing a series called The Big Book Cover to Cover, where each Sunday I take one book of the Bible and try to give you an overview of that book in a little non-traditional way in that we're not simply just going date and time and author and where it was written from, but to step back on it and go, what are some highlights about this text? What are some things that would be beneficial to be perhaps reminded of or for the first time exposed to? And so that's been the objective of the big book series, and today we find ourselves in the book of 2 Corinthians, or as our English brothers and sisters say, 2 Corinthians. Paul's written previous letters to the Corinthians, and to give you a little bit of a time flow, what's happening, because it's a little complicated, when you come from the corpus of Acts, the the body of the Acts record, we have Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the earth. The last part of the book is focused on the remotest part of the earth. It's both a geographical as well as a theological outline of what's happening. So Jesus is on earth truly for three years of ministry, besides his early life, three years of ministry, and then he leaves and he sets in motion a system, you'll do greater things than I've done. And so right at the beginning of Acts, we see thousands of people accepting Christ, trusting in Christ. We see the explosion in the church, the persecution in Jerusalem, the diasporeo. It says the church was scattered in Acts. And that word is used for sowing seed. The persecution got the church out of Jerusalem. And so you have Peter, of course, in Jerusalem. You have the ministry of Paul that's going to eclipse it, take it beyond. And each of these are spreading the gospel paul essentially evangelizes europe so in his move of taking the gospel around we have this central character first and second corinthians rome is of course being his magnum opus now we have these corrective letters what's interesting and fun and i think exciting about having two letters to corinth is we see the development of the church as well as problems and how the apostle steps in to correct the church. So important to keep that in mind when you're reading the New Testament. We're going to get to letters that we call the pastorals. They're the first and seconds primarily. First and second Thessalonians, first and second Timothy, and the book of Titus. We call those the pastoral epistles. So this same character, Paul, who's writing Romans and first and is going to write primarily to church leaders to tell them how to do church. This is what you do. So Pauline theology is so important in understanding the growth and the expansion and the spread of the gospel and the planting of churches. You truly, you and I truly are an extension of Acts chapter 4084 from this man named Paul. So that's one reason the life of Paul is so exciting. After the previous letter, Corinthians are being influenced by false teachers. This influence affects their thinking. They start challenging the apostles' teaching to the churches in Corinth. Well, that's not true. What Paul said is wrong, and they're stepping in a place of authority and leadership, usurping the apostle. They complain about his looks. They complain about his speech. He, he, he writes with boldness, but he's kind of unimpressive. He, in Hollywood, you say he's not an ingenue. Uh, So so they don't like the way he looks. They don't like the way he speaks. He's unimpressive. His writing is tough and rough. But not only that, he's dishonest. You can't trust him. So these false teachers and false teaching begin to get traction in the church in Corinth. And that begins the next letter. Uh, Titus is one of Paul's disciples. And he's going to obviously write a letter to Titus about a local church situation that we'll see in a few months. But the point is, Titus is sort of the emissary here. And so Titus is going to take these issues and address them to Corinth. And in some respects, there's going to be a change of heart. The Corinthians are going to say, that's right. But other Corinthians are going to say, no. And so you're going to have church tensions just like you do today. They never stop. Uh, One interesting part of this book is we see more of the personal side of Paul than anywhere else. His heart. His so-called pastor's heart, his compassion, the language he uses, being confronted, being accused as a false teacher, being accused as a liar, being uh, vilified, he's going to have heart toward people. And so it's a very interesting book of correction and apostolic authority, yet it's done in such an unusual way that makes it a, a precious book for many of us. Now scholars have debated how many times Paul went to Corinth and how many letters there are to Corinth. And it is, it's of note that he probably wrote four letters to Corinth. We know three for sure. In the last part of 2 Corinthians, you can see why we think there may have been a fourth one. Whether he visited two or three times, we don't know. I'm going to err on the four and three. It doesn't really matter because the content of what we have here is not changed by what we don't know. So, even though there may be some extant they call them letters that Paul wrote that we don 't have uh, they don 't influence the theology. Uh, keep in mind that these these books um, they 're they're sort of a back and forth i won 't bore you with the grammar and the terms, but like a person is raising an objection, and paul 's writing an answer so you have to keep that in mind. second Corinthians is in some respects a more stream of consciousness than any of Paul's letters. Paul is a precise writer. Romans is a good example. Galatians is a good... Second Corinthians has scholars scratching their head because it's so personal at places, and he kind of takes some sidebars, which I love because we do get to see some of the insight and the intimacy of who this man is. Well, let's, let me give you sort of a, a broad stroke of how the book's put together. Chapters 1 to 7 is primarily about his relationship to the Corinthians. Chapters 8 and 9 is his concern for the poor in Jerusalem. And if you recall, Jerusalem, after the persecution of the church, after 70 AD, Titus destroys the city, uh, people are spread out. It's the mother church, but it's upside down. And so these people are in need. And so these outer lying church plants are sending money Back to the mother church in chapters 8 and 9, which we'll look at very briefly, talk about these contributions. And then finally, chapters 10 to 13 is the most unusual and clearest defense of his apostleship. He's going to explain to them uh, why he can say what he is saying and why he can confront the false teachers and the false teaching. And he's going to anchor that on a tenacious commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll look at that in a little bit of detail. As I like to do with these books, as I'm reading through and asking questions and reading surveys, when what, what do people need to know? What do I need to know? What am I excited about? And so I, I just put this under the category of general observations. Number one, Paul, is, it's an intimate letter. It's a personal letter. It's not as doctrinaire as the book of Romans. And again, he shares these feelings and these personal insights. Um, the thing about false teaching is it wasn't just divisive. It was dangerous. It's one thing to have, you know, if you're a Democrat or a Libertarian or Republican and still you know, be a Christian and be in the same room. It's one thing, but if it's dangerous, if that divisiveness turns to danger and anger and vitriol, that's when Paul is concerned. And again, unusually, he's going to defend his apostleship, and then um, we're going to see this idea of how Paul addresses a confrontation. And talk about a lesson in leadership. You will not read this in any leadership book, what Paul does and how he responds to the contention and the, uh, the fight that they pick with him. Um, chapter 1 is unusual because the tone of chapter 1 is around three words, comfort, affliction, and suffering. And if you just do a casual reading of chapter 1 and circle those words, you'll be blown away. He's starting this letter talking about affliction, suffering, and comfort. And they're repeated again and again and again. Um, when I write letters to people who are going through trials, I will frequently put 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-7 through seven, as I sign off the letter. This is a passage I've gone back to again and again and again in my own experience, and I've shared with people that go through things. Let, let me read it with you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that—let me stop for just a second. When you read, so that, in Paul's writing— uh, think of a purpose coming or an explanation, just very simply. Why? So that. So let me reread that stanza. He's the father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. So that, this isn't just, it's good to know, there's a reason behind him telling us that. So that, look, we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by god for just as the sufferings of christ are ours in abundance so also our comfort is abundant through christ but if we are afflicted it is for your comfort and salvation or if we're comforted it is for your comfort which is the which it which is effective in the patient enduring, boy, underline that in your Bible, the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, you are also sharers of our comfort. Comfort, affliction, suffering, He's talking about what he's been through. This is the preface of his letter, and we're going to get deep into this in chapters 8 and 9. But this chapter always sets me on my heels because every one of us is going to go through disappointments and health challenges, and heartbreak, and loss, and gain, and emotional problems, and you're just not going to get out of life without having some you know scrapes, and skinned knees, and hurt feelings, and losses, and divorces, and children that break your heart, and on and on and on. And this book is talking about comfort, affliction, and suffering. Now, nobody wants to sign up for, comforting, uh, for Affliction and Suffering 101, When Paul's call to apostleship occurs, and Ananias, you remember we talked about this in the book of Acts, it's it's a comedy exchange. Ananias does not want to go and tell Saul of Tarsus what's happening to him. And he he essentially says to Jesus, you know what this guy's done? You're going to send me to him? And the voice from heaven says, go, for he's a chosen servant of mine, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Boy, I'm going to sign up for that job. You're going to have a miserable life suffering for the name of Christ. That was Paul's commission. Prosperity theology, set it aside. You're going to suffer and you're going to go to the edges of the world with the gospel for my name's sake. So he begins this letter with this comfort, joy, affliction that we're supposed to have in balance. And as we go through it, patiently enduring, there's a time when I can share it with other people. So this week I was studying this. I'm reading and a friend of mine um, named Beneath Reisner has an article. I think it's in Gospel Coalition. I can't remember. It's a couple years old. But it's called, um, God uses everything. Why our suffering is never wasted. I really hated that title. And I'm reading it, and about four lines in, she quotes A.W. Tozer, and he writes, when I understand that everything happening to me is to make me more Christ-like, it resolves a great deal of anxiety. I read that twice, and I really think it stinks. <laughs> I really hate that quote. And I, I wrote beneath, she's a friend, I, wrote, I, said, I have a love-hate with this quote. I, I said, I want this to be true, but if I'm transparent, it ain't true. Because when I go through sufferings and trials and afflictions and disappointments, I don't like it. I don't want to feel this way. I don't, it doesn't help me with my anxiety that, oh, somehow this is making me more like Jesus. Where's the, where's the, you know, where's the CLEP course? Where can I skip a grade? Where can I jump ahead in this education program? Why do I have to do this? So Vanith and I had this interesting exchange, and she said, I'm the same way, um, What a mark of maturity if you can understand that it takes away some anxiety if you understand this. What a mark of maturity if you can swallow, life is not going to work the way I want, and that is okay. Because I'm trusting Christ. And I'm becoming more like Christ, not more like a successful whatever. Talking to a friend of mine on the phone, coming in this morning. We're both in our, you know, retiring thing. He and his wife have retired, and he said, "Michael, I'm a little concerned because I feel like I haven't lived life, and all of a sudden I'm retired." And know, I don't want you young couples to think I'm an old crotchety retirement guy, but I am. Um, and I was trying to encourage him, saying, "But this is the day. What are you going to do today?" So then I had a lovely walk. Uh, in, in Carolinas a couple times and a lovely walk yesterday in our neighborhood and we talked about what are we going to do now? We've got to make a specific decision about some things we're, we're trying to accomplish and we've got to do it now. we got to do it now. Because you can't wait. Now when you're 20 or 30 you think you can wait. But when I read this passage and I go okay we've had our share of suffering, we've had our share of affliction uh, and we've had an abundance of comfort. And now at this chapter one of the most important things for me is how do I comfort other people who are going through these knotholes? Because we're all going to go through them. We're all going to go through them. The following passage right out on the heels of this in verse 11 is another one that jumps off the page to me. Paul writes, you also joining and helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Let me summarize this. Your prayers help other people. Some of you know Johnny Erickson Tata. Johnny and Ken have been dear friends of Cindy's and mine for a number of years now. And I remember asking Johnny on more than one occasion, Johnny, how do you understand this verse? How do our prayers somehow help other people's sufferings? I don't know if you ask about it. You know, it. it's not you know the more people that pray, it, the more effective prayer is. We know that intellectually, and we also quote these verses often in the context that you know, the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. We think of quantity. Move a mountain. You moved a mountain in your lifetime? I never have. And I, I read that verse, and I go, "I have to take this by faith, that somehow God uses prayer. Not in a, so what, if then, if I do this, then that happens. But God uses it in ways I cannot measure. And this verse puts me on my heels. Joining and helping us through your prayers. Don't underestimate your prayer life. A couple other passages that jump out to me. Chapter 3, verse 2. You are our letter written on our hearts. I don't know why that passage always (laughs) stops me when I read it. Paul's writing to these people that are giving him grief. And he says, you're our letter. You're written on our hearts. Are the people in your life that they're your letter? And you think about them and go, ah, what I wouldn't do for them. What I wouldn't do for them. Chapter 4, verse 1 and 4, verse 16. We do not lose heart. I've got the underlined and the line going across the page of my Bible connecting them. And the margin of my Bible, M-J-E, my initials, do not lose heart, underlined, exclamation point. You ever lose heart? How how helpful is it to lose heart? You <laughs> can be Eeyore. Oh, well. It's just my birthday. <laughs> Empty jar and a balloon. Who cares? Don't lose heart. And some of you, that's all you need to know today. Don't lose heart. One of the things in we read too much about COVID, the number of people who are home and becoming clinically depressed, mildly to clinically depressed, because their, their world's cut off, and they're looking at a screen all day, God help you. And you start to isolate, and then it feels normal, and you don't know, it, will it ever be the way it was in the future? I remember after 9-11, I remember preaching a sermon, and my opening line was, life will never be the same. Little did I know what that meant. Wasn't well, that smart. I just knew life was gonna be different. And you can't go to an airport today without what that one event, how it changed our our lives. Will COVID be that? I don't know. But is the believer gonna live in fear? Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. One of the most beautiful Pauline chiasms is in uh, chapter 4, verse 17. And if you've been around me, you've heard me use this many, many times, but I thought I'd show it to you in a way maybe it's easy to see. A chiasm is, uh, the Greek letter key is C-H, it looks like an X. And so the idea is A-A prime, B-B prime, C-C prime, however long it goes. And the point is in the middle, generally speaking, okay? This is a beautiful, simple one to see. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. So momentary is compared and contrasted with what? Eternal. Momentary versus eternal. Light compared and contrasted with weight. Affliction, glory. So this is a device that the apostle uses, many writers in the Bible use it, to make points, their structure helps the brain retain it, the repetition puts it together. I love this passage because too many of us are fixated on the here and now, my present reality. Our life is a vapor, we don't think about eternity. And when we think about eternity it's this ethereal thing somewhere in the future that we're kind of mildly interested in what happens when we die but I'm really worried about here and now and having a party And having enough money and having my life work out the way I want it to work. That's our fixation. Some of you recall a CD done by Jason Ingram and Jeremy Dibler and a bunch of those guys years ago. And they had a song called All Things New. And there was one hook in the song that I thought was brilliant. And it was our struggle here cannot compare with what we have to gain. Wow. Our struggle here cannot compare with what we have to gain chapter 5 verse 14 uh, the love of christ controls us having concluded that one died for all therefore all died so as i was putting these verses on slides i said michael does the love of christ control you (laughs) you're not laughing i'm sorry Uh, does the love of christ control you i'm sorry but i mean my controls me My appetite, my wants, my desires, my freedoms, my liberty controls me. How many of you are thinking about lunch today and what you're going to have? Or dinner? Or is somebody going to cook today? That's the bigger question probably. Does the love of Christ control you? And of course, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 is one many people were exposed to when they first came to Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come it's this recalibration you were dead to sin now you're alive to christ you were slaves to sin now you're a slave to righteousness and this comparison and contrast if you trusted christ if you've walked the out prayed the prayer said the words if you have put your trust in christ and christ alone to do for you what you cannot do for yourself if you believe in him if you put your faith in him that he lived he died he was buried he came back from the dead to prove his power over death and give life and grant life and forgiveness to all who put their trust and faith in him. If that occurs in your life, you are a new creator, creation. You're a new creature. You still have a sin in nature. You're still going to struggle with sin, evident in this book, but you're new. And it's a great reminder. Other passages that I find rich and helpful, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For, for Michael and Cindy are perhaps the most important chapters on stewardship and financial generosity in the entire Scripture. Um, look at chapter 8, verse 3 and 4. "...for I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints." Um, it's a remarkable passage, and you have to go back again to context, context I mentioned earlier. Jerusalem has fallen apart, the mother church, and these outlying plants are sending money back to the mother church. It's a real kind of head-scratcher. We, don't think, we think the mother church supporting things. Just the opposite occurred. I love the phrase, begging, with much urging. We want to help. We we're sitting there in Dallas during seminary. We attended a small church. It was uh, kind of a Brethren S. church. Some of you might know Brethren S. churches, assembly. They called it assembly. And um, we had a missionary, and uh, he'd gone off to another country. And uh, long story short, um, we saw this happen, that this church in another country sent money to a church in North Dallas, which, by the way, didn't need any money. This little impoverished church in another country sent money to the church in North Dallas to help this missionary couple. I've never seen that in my life. Never seen that in my life. An impoverished church helping another country that frankly didn't need the money. It speaks of transformed lives. Who, who wants to give? Who argues for participation? One of my mentors, at Floyd Sharps, with the Lord, and he came to Christ the first time he ever went to church. He was a pharmacy rep in Houston, Texas. He went to a It was called Bethel Independent Presbyterian Church. That's where I got bread and buttered after I came to Christ. But he was there many years before me. He was a pharmacy rep. In those days, pharmaceutical reps would go to pharmacies and see the pharmacist about stocking drugs in the pharmacy. That's how it worked 100 years ago. And that's what his job was with one of these big pharma companies. You would know the name. He called himself a drug pusher. Go see pharmacists all day. Well, one of these pharmacists invited him to church. He goes, You're kind of a smart guy. You'd like my pastor. He'd never been to church in his life. So he goes to church. A man named Dr. Edwin Bloom was the teaching elder. Ed Bloom's brilliant, dear friend, one of my professors. And uh, so Dr. Bloom preaches. Floyd comes to Christ. When Floyd died, Ed Bloom and I were at the funeral together. And Ed said, I've never in my entire life heard of a person coming one time to one of my sermons <laughs> and coming to Christ. And it changed Floyd dramatically. The next Sunday, he took his family to church. He said, the collection plate came and I pulled my wallet out. And he goes, I surprised myself. Because I never gave anything. I named the Boy Scouts. And I pulled my wallet out and I wanted to put money in the plate. And he knew something had changed. Now, for, for me, it was forgiveness of sin. I don't know what it was for you, but for Floyd, it was his pocketbook, lead. I want to do this. And Floyd never made a lot of money in life, but he was one of the more generous, generous people I ever knew. And I tell you that story just to emphasize how important... 2 Corinthians 8 is, because what he's saying is there is out of, out of their poverty they overflowed in their generosity. We have this idea in America that 10% is a tithe. And I'm here to break the news to you, that's the starting point. If you want to do your careful homework, you'll find out In the Old Testament, if you add up guilt offerings and peace offerings and free will offerings and first food offerings, and you add up all the tithes, you're north of 20%. Some argue 22.5. I won't go quite that far, but you're north of 20%. Now, does that mean you should give 20%? I didn't say that. I'm asking the question, what's generosity? If I'm a steward, it all belongs to him. He's letting me use it. What am I doing with it? So Cindy and I have had two people hugely influence us. One is a woman with the Lord, Vicki Nellis, who taught Cindy real estate. And Vicki was one of the first people that spoke out loud that she gave 20%. She said she was driving in her car on the Beltway in D.C. and she said, I just thought the Lord wanted me to give 20%. So I called Jim and said, Jim, we're going to start giving 20%. he goes, can we talk about this? Can we talk about this? And um, I heard Vicki tell that story. I looked at Cindy and I said, well, we're giving 10 or 12. Can we start You know, in in God's kindness, and you may not be this way as a couple, but Cindy and I had the same attitude toward giving. Early in our marriage, we said we would increase our giving before our standard of living. That was our motto. Increase our giving before our standard of living. So if we got a raise, if money came in the mail, we often would say, where are we going to deploy it? What are we going to give this away to do? And, And we have done that in God's kindness. We're not like the smartest people or wealthiest people on the planet, but we've always tried to be generous. And, you know, we love doing it. And we've helped people that are translators. We've helped people that work with disabled. We've helped organizations that work with, with orphans. Cindy's very involved in that. And we love to do it. It's not like we're supposed to. And we love giving here to Stonebridge. We love to do it. Now, I'm not, I, I've, I've told this story before, and I have people get in my face, and they're mad. because You're bragging. No, I'm telling you what God's done. If you think it's bragging, go read chapter 8. Someone had to tell Cindy and me they gave 20% before we started thinking about, we could do that too. And you know what we've discovered? We can live on 75% of our income as well as we can live on 100. And not to sound pretentious, we actually live better on 75% of our income than we do on 100 I hate the phrase because it's misused, but I do not think you cannot give God. You must use that phrase carefully. I'm not speaking of prosperity theology. You avoid debt, you live under your income, all the stuff. This community, this building we're in, <laughs> if you don't understand that, you're in a wrong town, friends. Uh, but that said, it's also dangerous because we can wear it like a badge of pride. We got it figured out. Um. It's his. And that's why I love chapter 8 because they gave. They, they implored it. No, you're going to take the money. You ever have your mother stuff a $20 bill in your pocket when you were going out the door to college or something? Or your grandma stuff a $20 bill? And you, oh, no, grandma, actually, give me more while you're at it. You, know? <laughs> you love doing that. And you as grandparents love doing that to your kids, don't you? Not your kids so much, but your kids. <laughs> Paul's credentials in chapter 11 and 12, we have a, unusual accounting it's an apologetic, but it's not a CV, it's not a Vita, it's not a resume, it's not, here's all I did. This, I, I call this a streetwise resume. A streetwise resume. I want to read it. Um, typically when people are attacked, you know what ad hominem means? So if you're in a debate, politics is a, is a landmine of ad hominem arguments. If you can't argue the issues, you attack the person. You call the person a name. You say something derogatory about him or her. That's called an ad hominem argument. You're not talking about uh, free market uh, economy versus socialism. You're attacking the individual who's saying that thing. Okay, That's an ad hominem argument. And you would expect at some level a person to say, well here's my credentials. Well Paul does that but in a very unusual way. Um, chapter 11, verse 22. Just listen. If you have your Bible, you can follow along. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. He's not talking about drugs. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day i spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from gent. This, this needs an underscore of music, guys, when you read this. Frequent dangers of Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among the b- false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Paul says, I didn't lay a financial burden on you. I didn't come in saying by the apostolic authority vested in me, you will do X. What I did was I suffered more than you understand. And does not hearken back to, I will show him how much he will suffer for my name's sake, which is why he's such an extraordinary character to study you could put him in an ivy league law school as a prestigious professor in our way we think of things who lives his life basically on the edges of civilization with often without food often without clothing often in danger often wounded some believe he might have had some sort of macular degeneration or eye disease we don't know but he says look this is my defense i worked this is my defense I serve Christ. What did you do? It's a, it's a fascinating defense of his apostleship. And unlike, again, what we might expect. Um, that last verse, 28, I read, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of all the churches, always makes me rattled. Here's a guy that's gone through hell and back. He says, I'm really concerned about the church more than that. And I go, what kind of person can say those words? And uh, I ain't Apostle Paul. I'm not any. I'm a close cousin or a distant relative, but boy, do I have concern for the churches in America. I don't. I don't say it with pretense or anger. It just breaks my heart how messed up they are. I'm not saying we're the only game in town. I'm not. There's no pretense there. It just breaks my heart if you've got one hour a week to try to help people grow in Christ, become disciples, share the personal work of Jesus with those who don't know them, what you do with that hour. And that's why I'm so glad some of you were in small groups and BSF and precept, whatever ones you you watching. I'm so glad you're doing that because you're staying in, it, staying in it, staying in it, staying in it. It's not a one-hour event. You go and you're entertained and impressed and whatever else. Nothing new under the sun. Paul had the same concern. Well, chapter 12 is a passage about the thorn in the flesh that is often ripped out of context and grossly misapplied. Um, Just as a quick sidebar, who's an apostle? Uh, How do you have apostolic credentials? There are churches today that will use that term, and uh, they may have redefined the meaning a little bit. That's that's their business. But in the New Testament, there were criteria... And Paul mentions them in in 2 Corinthians, that they had to be chosen by Christ, had to be with Christ, and do the works of Christ. Chosen by, with him, and do the works of. So the 12 apostles he originally picks, including Judas, were chosen by Christ, did the works of Christ, and were with him. Paul is an also-ran. Paul doesn't have that experience with Christ like they did. He has a Damascus Road experience. Christ speaks to him. Christ appears to him and talks to him in a vision or a dream we can 't be one hundred percent sure how he had that interchange with Jesus, but he did, and he does do the works of Christ. He performs some miracles, but that 's not the mainstay of his ministry so he 's always on the sort of on his heels. How do I defend i 'm an apostle without sounding arrogant and pretentious, but paul 's the one who gives us his the information. These are the marks of a true apostle well um, Finally, a verse that is a, a loaded verse, but I want to end with this for a good reason. In chapter 13, verse 5, this is a verse that you, you've probably, maybe someone has thrown this at you in college ministry. Maybe you used it on people, but it's an interesting text. Let me read it. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, and most English translations put an exclamation point there, not in the Greek. Do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Now this this is a watershed issue in evangelical Protestant believing churches. Um, Is Paul saying find out if you're a Christian? And that's certainly an application we often hear of this passage. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I think in the broader context of this chapter he's saying if you're a believer in Jesus Christ you ought to be sanctified. You ought to be growing in your faith. So test yourself. What question have I asked you over and over if you've listened to me for anything, what have I asked you over and over and over? Are you any more like Jesus Christ than you were last year? Are you any more like him than you were four years ago? Do you see any and that's not proud or arrogance, I'm asking the question the text asks us: Are you growing in sanctification and becoming a little more like Jesus Christ and a little less like your sinful self? That sanctification? Are we going to be perfect? No. Never. But are we growing is the question that we don't ask. Are you obeying him? Are you joyful in your obedience? Are you ready to run to it? Do you want to be sanctified? Some of us like our sin. And that's a good question, chapter 13, 5, to say. If you and I love our sin, examine yourself. What's going on? These aren't Rocket science, rocket theology, these aren't the only questions to ask. But are you in his word? Are you in prayer? And are you growing? Are you in community? God's word, God's spirit, God's people. I don't think you can do it apart from that. Maybe you can. How many of you don't raise your hands are doing Noom? How many of us have done Keto? How many of you have run marathons? How many of you have fill in the blank? When you start any of those programs, you do some, to borrow a friend's phrase, baby steps. steps. You start doing some things. Uh, It's all the same as caloric intake and measuring food. Whether you cut out carbs, sugars, whatever, it's it's all the same. It's reduction in intake and increasing some exercise. Exercise alone will never make you lose weight or make you stronger, right? We know this. You got to have both. And that's why it's so hard for a lot of us to do both. But when you start those programs, what do they do? They help you. Uh, I have a friend that runs, I forget how many marathons, way too many. God did not invent marathons for you to run. That's my opinion. <clears throat> um, God invented television to watch people run marathons. <laughs> anyway, you're going to start out on a program. And they've got programs that are mapped out two months, three months, six months on how you train. And you don't do what you think you should probably do. You run a little bit and you actually take a break. Then you work up and one weekend you run 10 miles for the first time. And then you take a break. And, and so it's not just a continual scale. It's a really good analogy. You do this and you do this and you do this. And, and you do this, and you do this, and then you keep going. Noom and keto are similar. You start adjusting and refining and doing things, and then you see some reward. When I was 212 pounds, and I started seeing it go to 200, and then the 190s, I was like, there's progress. Some of you doing Noom see the same kinds of things happening in your life. Why is it all so hard to look at our spirituality and say, am I growing in the Word? Am I growing in prayer? Am I growing in my love for one another? Does the love of Christ control you? I, gotta, I can't lie to you. I don't always let the love of Christ control me. I just don't. I'm selfish and sinful. And sometimes my anger controls me. Sometimes my rights control me. Sometimes my liberty gets out of hand and becomes license. I know none of you have those problems. But if you don't ask the question, you never make progress. If you don't ask the question, am I growing, you're never going to grow. It's not because you have to, it's because you can. It's not because you should, it's because you're able. It's not because you're going to be a better whatever, it's because you love him. Right? Keep your nose in the book keep working at your prayer. Keep working at being the man the woman Christ wants you to be. And don't be discouraged. Don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you more than you love your sin. He loves you more than you love the world. And He cares about your growth and your maturity and you becoming more like Jesus Christ.
0: Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at MichaelInContext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates.